Hello, this is Robert Hossery. I'm the executive producer of 10 Lessons It Took Me 50 Years to Learn. And just before our episode starts, I'd like to talk to you about Peas in a Pod podcast. Peas in a Pod is a podcast that interviews Princeton students about their unique perspectives, passions, pursuits, and other peas. By having an open, honest conversation with various Princeton students, Peas in a Pod hopes to promote student discourse on salient or overlooked issues and provide a peek into the student generation and the complex world of higher education. Links to all listening platforms can be found at peasinapod.buzzsprout.com. That's P-S-I-N-A-P-O-D.buzzsprout.com. You can also follow Peas in a Pod on Instagram at Peas in a Pod, where you can participate in their polls and playlist series. And you can also follow them on Twitter at Peas in a Pod Network. Once again, that's P-S-I-N-A-P-O-D. And now I hope you enjoy this latest episode of 10 Lessons It Took Me 50 Years to Learn. Being attentive to the people lower in the totem pole can actually play an invaluable role in getting the mission done. Because they believe the boss, if if the boss cares about me, then I'm going to do my darndest to make sure the boss succeeds. Not not simply doing it because the boss gave me an order, but because I believe in the boss, and therefore I believe in the boss's uh, mission. Now, as I say this to you, I say, we're here here to talk about wisdom. I say, that's not wisdom. That's like the most obvious thing in the whole world. Uh, (laughs) Now. (laughs) Now. That's right. Uh, I, I, those, are, those are the sorts of things that are much more difficult to discern, I think, when you're young. Now, some people get them right away. Uh, I was always a slow, slow learner, so. Hello and welcome to the podcast, 10 Lessons That Took 50 Years to Learn, where we dispense wisdom, not just cliches, platitudes, or banalities, to an international audience of rising leaders. My name is Duff Watkins, and I'm your host. Our guest today is Professor Emeritus of Boston University, Andrew Basevich. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Now, I want to say to the listeners, uh, Professor Basevich is an expert in military history and international relations, but he's not some sort of armchair academic guy sitting in an ivory hall mailing it in because, as, as I know, Andrew, you were, you're a graduate of the Military Academy of the United States, West Point, which is no mean achievement in and of itself. You were a career military officer, you've worked overseas, you've been in combat, you have uh, you have walked the talk, you retired as a colonel, so you're not some sort of armchair academic is what I'm trying to say. And uh, you, you are, this is my favorite description of you, you are described as a persistent vocal critic of the United States, and to which I thought, well, I should hope so, because uh, you actually know where, <laughs> whereof you speak about these things. Um, all right. We won't talk about politics so much. We want to really talk about wisdom. So let's talk about the very first lesson. Okay. You're an American historian. Lesson number one, the historian's duty is to revise history. Wait a minute. I thought the historian's job was to record history. Well, I uh, my first serious encounter with history was when I went to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is back in the middle of the 1970s. I was a serving army officer. The army officer sent me to, gra- sent, the army sent me to graduate school to prepare me to teach history at West Point for a couple of years. And I must say that when I showed up in the Princeton campus, I thought that history was something that you memorized. You know, <laughs> I figured that all I needed to do to get my degree was to, you know, read a handful of books and uh, absorb what they said. You know, why did the civil war occur? And, and then to regurgitate that for my cadets when I became a teacher. What I found was something quite different. And that is, history really is an argument. Each generation poses its own questions of the past mm-hmm. to the past. Questions that each generation deems to be relevant to contemporary concerns. And therefore, each, each generation ought to come up with its own, with with its own answers mm-hmm. with regard to what history means i think we are experiencing that today in in a very vivid way and that has to do with the place of racism 
as part of our collective story, part of part of American history. When I was going to, to graduate school, the, the historical profession, the, 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 the professors that I studied with who taught me were in the process, I think, of coming to a revised understanding of how race fit into the larger narrative. And I must tell you, uh, given my upbringing at that time, I don't think I was particularly responsive to the new questions and the, that they were asking and the new answers that they were uh, coming up with, with regard to race. Mm-hmm. You know, 40 or so years later, I can understand that those questions were necessary. And I may not agree with all of the agree with the way we have come to interpret the place of race in American history, but I think it's been invaluable. Mm-hmm. So again, the the questions change, the answers change. And I think what makes history exciting is that it, it ends up being a, a never-ending argument, mm-hmm. not necessarily the way the public sees history, but I think the way the public ought to see history. So I guess my takeaway from that is the history is continually being reinterpreted, but also re-experienced. I think somebody said the past is re-experienced. It's not even the past. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's right. the present, really. Right. Uh, I, I I think that's exactly right. I mean, I I read an article over the weekend, an essay by a uh, historian teaching at Oxford. What's his name? Martin Conway. Mm-hmm. Never heard of the guy before. Mm-hmm. I mean, Conway, the point of Conway's argument of his, of his essay was to argue that, to argue about the, to the meaning of the Trump phenomenon. I think there's a tendency among not all Americans, many Americans, sort of breathe a sigh of relief uh, that, that Trump is out of office, uh, that our, our new president... Uh, is restoring a sense of normalcy to American politics. Biden is a very conventional politician. Mm-hmm. He's a middle of the road guy. He is a senior citizen who, uh, I mean, not to be unfair, but doesn't seem likely to really shake things up too much. And I think for many Americans after Trump, that's just what they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What this guy is arguing is that the significance of Trump lies not in anything that he did, any policy decisions that he made. The significance of Trump is the fact that we elected him. Yes. That the American people chose this, what should we say, non-politician, unqualified for high office, either by experience or by temperament. And what he's suggesting is that the election of Donald Trump in 2016, and the fact that he got 74 million votes Mm -hmm. uh, in 2020, is suggestive of a change in the American people where, in a sense, the the American people are now posing new questions about the past and looking for new answers. The upshot uh, is, he argues, that history as we know it, call it the history of the 20th century, that that history has ended, that we, we we have now embarked upon a new historical era, which we don't come remotely close to understanding. But, he argues, to to maintain the pretense that the history of the 20th century, as we understand it, is still legitimate or valid, is going to lead to enormous disappointment. So the charge is to embark upon an inquiry as to what, what is the content or meaning of this new historical era. It's a fascinating piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and it obviously reinforces my own uh, my own biases. Well, I'm just about to say I've heard some of this before because I just finished your I believe it's your most recent book, The Age of Illusions. Now, yes. readers, listeners, I want to say years ago I read an article, one of your articles in Atlantic, New York Times, Washington Post. So I called up this mate of mine in uh, North Carolina. I said, I just read this interesting article. I got to send it to. And he says, yeah, I, I read base of vicious stuff all the time. So then I bought one book, two books, three books. I read several of your books, most recently, The Age of Illusions. And I want to say, readers, listeners, you want to check out Andrew's books because, one, they're really thin. and They, they don't take forever to read. <laughs> they're very cogent, very lucid. Every word counts. And I find myself agreeing with the analysis um, over and over again. And when I didn't, it sure as hell made me think. So 
I mean, th that is a great, if, if you're not really into history, you will be when you read some of Andrew's books. The Age of Illusions is the one I just finished. And back to your point, it's difficult to bring on the old paradigm of the past history because we're living in a new age and we're living in it. So we don't have it. The reference, the old reference points no longer right. hold or pertain so much. Okay. Yeah. And we have no new reference points uh, yet to replace them with. Yes. Yes. And, 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 you know, to your point personally, what shocked me, man, I, I've lived outside the U S for 40 years, but the fact that a guy like Donald Trump would be regarded as a leader in the American by the American public is what astonished me in 2016. Now I, I suppose I'm over it. I've adjusted that paradigm. That's the way it is. And, uh, and we won't talk politics, we're talking more wisdom, but still, the point is it's a paradigm shift or it's a shift in something. Right. Okay, that takes us to point number two. Thinking of yourself or your country as exceptional is the big lie that imprisons you. Now, you're going to get in a lot of trouble in the U.S. if you say that. I got to tell you, because, you know, American exceptionalism right. is a religion over there. And you sound like a heretic. Well, it is heresy, I think. Uh, actually, the, sec the, the second topic, I think, uh, follows on from the first. So I, I was born in 1947, right after World War II. Both my parents were World War II veterans and proud. Conservative Catholic family, still a Catholic. Both my parents, especially my mom, uh, deeply patriotic. God bless her soul. But I have to say, in retrospect, from my perspective, uncritically patriotic. Her history, my dad's too, but in particular, my mom's. Her history centered on World War II. That was the, the, the fountain from which so much of her understanding of the world uh, flowed. And it was a heroic story. And I don't want to come across this argument. It was a heroic story. I happened to be reading just now. I'd seen the movie, but I never read the book. Cornelius Ryan's famous <clears throat> history of D-Day, The Longest Day. I can't say that I'm learning anything that I didn't know. But by golly, am I being reminded of the, the courage of the GIs who embarked upon that treacherous undertaking mm -hmm. that made an important contribution to the liberation of Western Europe and to the creation of the post-war world that I grew up in. On the other hand, guess what? The Soviets killed a hell of a lot more Germans than we did. The Soviets, Joseph Stalin, probably killed about as many people, murdered about as many people as Adolf Hitler did. Stalin wasn't fighting for liberalism and democracy and freedom. <laughs> no. <laughs> but he was a crucial ally. So American exceptionalism tends to want to frame World War II as a liberating event where America stepped forth from the Western Hemisphere to save civilization. That's the way my mom viewed it. That's why I viewed it growing mm -hmm, up. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and that is a sort of narrative that then underwrites the claims of American exceptionalism. I mean, who, who else, who else would do what we did in coming to the aid of Great Britain and then liberating Western Europe? And if all you know about history, that then American exceptionalism is pretty easy to buy into. But guess what? as my little foray into reminding about this. So it's a lot more complicated than that. And the older I've gotten, the more I've come to believe that uh, the effects of American exceptionalism on us are pernicious. And I think we saw that with enormous clarity in the wake of 9-11. Mm. You remember, treacherous, murderous act. You know, we didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. George W. Bush, you know, who would have wanted to be George W. Bush on the evening of September 11, 2001, when you have to go on television, you have to explain to the American people what happened on your watch and what now you intend to do about it. He, too, was not prepared to be president. Mm -hmm. But what was his response? His response framed over the next uh, few weeks was to embark upon a global war on terrorism against an axis of evil, axis of evil compared to the axis of the early 1940s, promises to eliminate, explicit promises to eliminate evil from the face of the earth, explicit promises to not only eliminate terrorism, but to bring about the transformation of the Middle East, spreading liberalism and democracy. 
and that became a that became the argument in favor of going to war and specifically launching the Iraq War of 2003. In other words, what 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 framed the, the Iraq War was less serious, thoughtful, strategic planning. It was ideology. It was the ideology of American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. It was a conceit, to, a, a fabulous conceit. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, it, and to my mind, the result was catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, to some degree, the result was Donald Trump. I mean, I, I mean, it, uh, pe- people voted for Donald Trump for all kinds of reasons, but in in my judgment, one of those reasons was that uh, a, a large number of Americans were sick and tired of the wars that had been undertaken pursuant to this global war on terrorism. So there's an argument to be made that American exceptionalism served as well for a time. You know, if you look at the Mexican War of 1846-1848, Mexican War was a war of aggression by the United States directed against the Republic of Mexico, Mm -hmm. justified by claims of manifest destiny. That is to say, some kind of a providential claim that it was incumbent upon us to spread freedom out to the Pacific coast. So we go to war with Mexico, we take California, we uh, confirm the annexation of Texas, uh, we, we, we bring uh, the Southwest into the union. I don't regret that. I don't feel bad that we basically stole California from Mexico. I don't buy the justification of manifest destiny any longer. But I have to say that if you're looking for how how is it that the United States of America created in 1776, small, weak, kind of huddled along the Atlantic coast? How do we get from there to 1945 to become the richest and most powerful nation on the planet? American exceptionalism used, for example, in the Mexican War provides an explanation for how all that happened. The problem in my mind is, okay, this kind of goes back to we're now living a new history. So here we are in 2021. It's not, it's not clear to me mm-hmm. that the claims of American exceptionalism remain valid or, or, or perhaps more to the point that remain useful to us, that we need to come to a different understanding of who we are as a people, as a nation, in order to, to accommodate a new reality. After the Cold War, there was a lot of talk about you know, a, a unipolar moment. There's only one superpower. The history had, quote unquote, ended. There was no alternative to American style liberal democracy. I mean, I'm being sarcastic as I say it, but the truth is, for a time, those ideas were taken very, very seriously. They were. Well, well yeah. Um, I, they, I, were, I, they were wrong. They were yes. incorrect. Uh, and, and therefore, what we need now is a different perspective. So it's in that sense that I think uh, if, if you buy into something like American exceptionalism, it makes it more difficult to understand, you know, who we are, where we are, where we need to go next as a nation. Mm-hmm. It is um, for me, I just can't find the evidence for it anymore. I mean, like you, I come from a military family. You're an army guy. I was I was born in U.S. Marine base. My father is U.S. Marine. I raised in a U.S. Marine town. U.S. Marines buried my father. I uh, have an affinity for the U.S. Marines. But um, that was then. This is now. Like you, I believed everything I was told until I stepped outside the country and started seeing and observing. So now I just look at the evidence for American exceptionalism and can't find it. Americans are great at manufacturing their own myths is what I have observed many times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think we're unique in that regard. No, no. You know, I mean, do the Swiss have myths about themselves? Maybe so. And it doesn't matter because Switzerland is not throwing its weight around uh, as a major actor on the uh, on the global stage. So the the negative implications of us buying into a false sense of who we are can cause great harm to ourselves and great harm to others. And again, if I, if I look at the narrative, the, the military narrative of post 9-11, we did great harm to ourselves and great harm to others. And that's it. It's the false sense of self that leads to self-harm. And not in the long term, but in the short term, here and now, right. and also in the long term. That's my takeaway right. from point. Right, right. Well, let's stick with the military theme. Point number four, war, pardon me, point number three, War is uncontrollable. I was going to say, doesn't everybody know that? But I'm, 
I mean, actually, what I want to say to most people, especially young people, I, you know, I think they believe war is a goddamn video game. And now you've seen the reality. <laughs> you, you know what it's like. You've been there. You've seen stuff explode. I mean, and yeah. and and people die. It's how do you how do you convey that to somebody? Well, you're making a good point. I mean, if if one's conception of war is a video game, you know, conveying a sense of truth about war becomes very very uh, difficult. Back when I was teaching, I used to teach courses in military history, and I I think one of the things I was trying to do was to convey a sense of how you know once. Once the once the political decision makers say go, uncertainty takes over. Chance takes over. It becomes very difficult to project the course that a that a war is going to take. And I don't want to keep talking about the Iraq War, mm. but again, a good example, illustrative example, where we undertook this war to overthrow the Saddam Hussein regime. We knew Saddam uh, was uh, not particularly popular, ruthless dictator, but. We, we knew his army was weak. We'd beat up his army back in 1991. Whole country been under severe sanctions ever since. So the task, the military task of overthrowing Saddam was not expected to be all that difficult. And it wasn't all that difficult. The problem happened with what happened next. The, the uncontrollable part of the war happened when both senior US commanders and American politicians thought that the war was over. It was supposed to end with the with the overthrow of the Saddam Hussein regime. Instead, what we got was a civil war compounded by an insurgency, with U.S. forces struggling uh, to impose a sense of order. Finding the, the troops finding themselves called upon to fight a war radically different from the war they had expected. And they expected a war of you know tanks and fighter planes against organized formations that had their own tanks and fighter planes. But we ended up fighting insurgents. I mean, the physical environment was radically different from Southeast Asia, but the nature of the war resembled the war that we fought in Southeast Asia back in the 1960s and into the 1970s. And we learned then that we're not particularly, we, the US, US forces, are not particularly adept at dealing with insurgencies. So, you know, there is a tendency in some quarters, I wouldn't say it's necessarily young people today. And these are people, These are, in, in terms of political labels, it's people on the right, it's people on the left. Mm-hmm. You know, on, on the left, it's the humanitarians. There's terrible things going on right now in Myanmar. And, and there will inevitably somebody, we need to intervene there in Myanmar. We need to clobber the Burmese army. We need to put a democratic order in place and fix this. It turns out to be a lot harder than that. So I just think it's one of those, uh, when, when you're, when you're, when you're, when you've become a grown up and you're, you're, you're trying to understand the, the difference between what even a powerful nation like ours can do and what it should refrain from doing. It seems to me that what's important is to be very wary of war. Don't kid yourself that war is going to provide a cheap and easy solution to a complex problem. There are times when war is necessary, but I think that the, the, the prudent statesman recognizes that those, those situations, those circumstances don't occur all the time. So that's the point of that one. Uh, point number four, to fear ideology is irrational. So when I was growing up, talking 1950s America. Mm-hmm. I was there. Cold War. <laughs> Early Cold War, clearly defined demarcation between our side and their side, free world against the slave world. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that made them, the other side, dangerous was that they had a different belief system. What do we want to call it? Communism, Marxism, Leninism, in China, Maoism, as opposed to liberal democracy, or more, or more simply, freedom uh, on our side. Sounds better. So I very much, I very much grew up in a in a, in a environment in which you know, Marxism, the belief system, was considered dangerous. Mm-hmm. I remember when I when I was growing up, and this is uh, you know I was probably like five or six years old. People had radios on, and you begin to you just barely beginning to interpret what the news was about. 
in the, in, in the news, people would talk about communism a lot. And I remember that my, at first I thought communism was probably a disease. <laughs> that it was something that if you, if you caught it, you were going to get very, very, very sick. Took me a while to figure out it wasn't a disease. You know, it was a it was an ideology. It was perspective. It was a, a, a set of ideas. But I, but I recall the anecdote because it 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 is a remains a reminder to me that I don't think ideas are dangerous. I think maybe it's what's dangerous is to be persuaded that your ideas, you know, that the American ideas are definitive are right, are right for us and are right for them, are right for all times. And so here, you know, here we are, I, I, would, I would say that today there's an interesting theme in American politics where this is maybe the Bernie, Bernie Sanders camp. There's a flirtation with socialism, not with Marxism, Leninism, you know, not with, but there's, you know, people, yeah, maybe social, maybe there's something to be said for socialism. Here we are a country that, in the aggregate level, we're rich with enormous poverty, enormous inequality. And people like Bernie Sanders and others in his in the progressive camp, I guess we choose to, you know, well, maybe, maybe there's something to socialism that we should consider. Back in the 1950s, you if you said socialism, you'd be branding yourself a communist. So I, I think, I mean, I, I myself have come to be. I'm not a socialist, but I, I have come to be a, a lot more willing to learn about, consider the possibility of ideological alternatives. Or maybe to put it this way, I'm, I'm no longer persuaded that there is a one-size-fits-all ideology. You know, I, I, don't, I don't approve of, nobody's asked me to approve of, the Communist Party's rule in the People's Republic of China. I recognize that it's an authoritarian government. I recognize that the Chinese people are denied all kinds of freedoms that I cherish. I get as upset as anybody else when we see the kind of uh, repression that occurs in Hong Kong, uh, when young Chinese in particular uh, demonstrate on behalf of their freedom. All of that said, I'm not persuaded at this point that the United States of America, from an ideological perspective, has the answer for China. Mm, mm. You know, that if they would only embrace our ideology, our values, that all would be well. I'm more inclined to say, well, you know, maybe China's a different place than the United States. Maybe they need to be able to follow their own path. I talked to a Chinese guy in Australia who, who told me, he said he lived under communism. He said, it's not so bad. And I was absolutely <laughs> astonished. My mind almost, I never considered the possibility. And, and that's the point that, that, you know, the U.S. or you or I, we don't have total, complete, exclusive access to the truth, the universal truth. Right. And, and there are many mutations of truth in government and um, there, there are liberal democracies, there are non-liberal democracies. Uh, Fareed Zakaria writes extensively about that, right. and, and I think movingly right. about that, and very eye-opening. And so uh, I like to use this analogy. There is a smorgasbord of governments out there, uh, government types, yeah. and pick and choose. You know, and, and you like democracy? Fill up, fine. But, you know, there, there are downsides to both. Anyway, lesson number five, my personal favorite. My absolute personal favorite, never feel sorry for the people in charge. Wait a minute. Are you saying I shouldn't feel empathy, sympathy for all those CEOs and corporate executives and, and leaders who are, who are uh, when, they, when they lose their revenue streams or when they lose an election and they lose their access to power, I shouldn't just weep for them? No, we shouldn't. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, they, they, they got to where they are because they wanted to be there. You know, they acquired power, you know, wealth, influence, celebrity, because that's what they wanted. I don't know how if it's conscious or not, but I mean, they defined their life's purpose in terms of ascending some greasy pole. And most people don't get to the top, and some people do. You know, as you and I speak, Governor Cuomo uh, of New York State 
is being pilloried uh, by the press uh, because of accusations of sexual harassment mm-hmm. being lodged against him by a couple of women who uh, I think who were in his employ as governor. I don't, I don't frankly know all the details, nor, nor am I making any judgment about the details. But he's having some tough days right now. Well, you know, <laughs> everybody has tough days. <laughs> and, and if he didn't want to be governor in New York uh, and, you know, be exposed, as it were, uh, to all this media attention, he could have done something else with his life. So I don't feel sorry for the people in charge. Uh, I, I recognize that when you're in charge, there's always going to be people who are hoping to see you fall flat on your face. Mm-hmm. I think that's some something of what's going on with Governor Cuomo right now. He's he's a, not a pleasant character, as best I can tell. Uh, and and there are some in the press, I guess even in his own party, that are more than happy to see him get his comeuppance. But, you know, that's, that's the way the game is played. Right now, President Biden, to my uh, my view, is getting a bunch of sweetheart treatment mm-hmm. uh, from the press. Well, guess what? That won't last forever. No. Uh, and 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 frankly, he probably knows it. He's been around. He's been around, around long enough to know that you don't take too seriously positive press coverage. So, you know, I just don't feel sorry for the people in charge. <laughs> Nor do I. I. I will say, I mean, I do have a respect because they do what it takes to get there. When I say respect, I don't mean... Um, uh, support or um, affirmation. They do what it takes to get there, and by God, they'll do whatever it takes to stay there. And so, to me, that yeah. resonates. So, I, that's one reason why I don't feel sorry. I never have felt sorry. I never will feel, feel sorry for them. Well, you know, you're you're reminding me. There's a famous uh, essay, I think, by uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, where he he talks about the courage of the man in the arena. For him, it's a man. <laughs> of course, uh, you know the 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 person who has the gumption, the courage to, to, to offer himself or herself for consideration. Give me your votes. Is willing to risk rejection, the humiliation of rejection? And there's something to that. It does take courage to, to seek these uh, positions. Uh, and one should acknowledge that. Uh, but when things don't go right, you know, I'm not going to be shedding tears for them. Mm. I suppose it's like uh, complaining about getting hit hard when you're playing American gridiron at a very high level. I mean, they hit very hard in, right. in, the, in the NFL. I'm told they hit very, very hard. And I have no, I no desire do. to experience it any more than that. <laughs> yeah. uh, lesson number six, the greatest sin of all is the lack of empathy for others. That sounds like a good Catholic speaking. Well, I don't know if I'm a good Catholic, but uh, I think I've come to know myself well enough to understand that that's a that's a personal failing of mine. That uh, not to uh, you know to to be so focused on some larger purpose, which more often than not ends up being personal ambition, that you fail to attend to what the people around you are feeling, what they need. I think. Parents do this, you know, they're absorbed with their professional life. Don't give the kids the attention that they deserve. But I think it happens in a professional setting as well. When when the emphasis on getting the job done, come on, we got to get the job done, then I think that can easily result in not attending to the needs of the people who are trying to get that job done. Uh, and I, I, I just know that uh, in my earlier life when I had professional responsibilities, that that was a, a failing of mine. Too bad somebody didn't tell me then. <laughs> of course, if they had, I probably would have said, oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do think that uh, I regret that I, my lack of empathy. I must tell you this story. I was doing, I used to work as a, a psychotherapist in, um, in Sydney, and uh, I was attending a course on emotional intelligence, and there was a woman leading it. And, and I said something, some, this came up, and I said something, well, yeah, except in the military, when they give you a mission, they give you a task, and you take that hill, and, you know, they don't ask for a show of hands of who wants to go first, and, you know, how does everybody feel about it? They simply tell you, you do it, it's a mission. And she said to me, she said, Duff, I work with the military all the time, and they tell me over and over and over again, those are the worst officers they deal with. Those are the worst. 
And a light went on for me, Andrew, and I, and I, confirming what you say, I mean, human empathy, there is no substitute, there is no replacement mm -hmm. for it. And even in the mm -hmm. military, and you know far better than me, there, it is, um, it's not optional, it is a requirement for leadership. I, I, I agree. And again, again I, in retrospect, I wish I had uh, manifested more than I did, but, you know, everybody's got their own sins. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this takes us to lesson number seven. Ambition causes blindness. Now, you were you're a career military guy, and, and in the, yeah, long, long long ago now. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. decades well, ago, a while ago. Yeah, in the military, it's it's up and out. I believe it was then. I believe it still is now. And pretty much, yep. You don't get to be a colonel by accident in the United States Army. You have to do a lot of things right and a lot of things that are expected. I guess. So tell me more how ambition causes blindness. That's kind of, I think in a way it's the flip side of the empathy point. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're right. The, the ambition that is, uh, that is promoted by the military profession is ambition that focuses on getting the job done. The mission, whatever the mission is. I mean, it, it, in combat, it might be taking the hill. Mm -hmm. You're working in the Pentagon. It might be to complete some kind of study for some four-star general in the next two weeks and to brief it and get it right. But it's hard also to separate this determination to get the job done from your own personal ambitions. Because if, if, you, if, you, if you complete that staff study and you're able to make a persuasive presentation to the four-star general in the Pentagon, not only will that study produce a positive outcome, we hope, it's also going to make the four-star general think well of you. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that the mission orientation we're talking about the military. I don't think it's just in the military. No, it's not. It, it, I suspect it's the same thing. If you're if you're working for Amazon, yeah, corporate yeah, world, yeah, working, yeah, yeah, that that the the mission orientation camouflages ambition and probably contributes to not being s sufficiently attentive to the needs of people who may be lower than you are on the totem pole. Even though, as you suggested in your anecdote. Being attentive to the people lower in the totem pole can actually play an invaluable role in getting the mission done. Because they believe the boss, if, if the boss cares about me, then I'm going to do my darndest to make sure the boss succeeds. Not, not simply doing it because the boss gave me an order, but because I believe in the boss, and therefore I believe in the boss's uh, mission. Now, as I say this to you, I say, we're here, we're here to talk about wisdom. I say, it's not wisdom. That's like the most obvious thing in the whole world. Uh, <laughs> now. <laughs> now. That's right. Uh, I, I, those, are, those are the sorts of things that are much more difficult to discern, I think, when you're young. Now, some people get them right away. Uh, I was always a slow, slow learner. So. Well, you're, you're actually wider than you think in, in terms of neuro, neuropsychology. Ambition, over-focus, over-learning actually does constrict your attention so that you literally, your, your attention is narrow. Your concentration is narrow. That's not always, that's not a bad thing necessarily. But what it means is you will miss, you will overlook, you will not see some, some probably very important things that are happening, that are coming at you. You might be looking here when you should be looking there. You might be so mm -hmm. focused on, you might not see that the goals have changed as you, as yep, you were saying, you know. That. Yeah, you're 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 so consumed with your own in, inner needs that you haven't noticed that yeah. people in the and the team have needs as well. Yeah. So right, I think that's true. Oh, number eight, lesson number eight. Oh boy, here we go. Social media is inherently evil. So I'm a guy. I, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on any of that stuff. I do not have a smartphone. My wife has a smartphone, so when we go someplace, you know, we can maintain communications with our kids and so on. Mm -hmm. But and it seems to me that the evidence is clear. Well, two things are clear. First is that the so social media takes over your life. I mean, it, you forfeit your autonomy, even though I don't do all that stuff on my phone. When you and I are done talking, I'm, I'm looking at you on my laptop. When you and I are done talking, first thing I'm going to do is check my email. Mm -hmm. Because during the course of our conversation of roughly an hour, I, I have not checked my email and I can feel the need to do so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm uneasy that I haven't checked my email. It's visceral. And I think, mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, but I, and I think I have kind of a, a mild case of this disease. <laughs> you know, the kids who, who cannot have their phone out of their hands and who are, you know, 
checking their Facebook page. I mean, there's, I think there's data on this. Hundreds of times a day are addicted. Again, I think I have, a, I, I, I am not immune, but I, I think I have a relative and I have a mild case because I don't do Facebook or Twitter or all those things. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is the way that social media just coarsens mm. the discourse. It brings out the worst in us, mm-hmm. you know, to to snap back uh, at someone or or some opinion, not not in ways that somehow expands the amount of wisdom in the world or advances mutual understanding, but just sort of settles scores. And that too, for me, is a reason why I just I just don't want to do that. I just don't want to be be part of that. Mm, mm. So I'm holding out. <laughs> <laughs> what you're describing, uh, the, the famous phrase by Neil Postman is amusing ourselves to death, uh, mm. seeking the constant stimulation of not participating, but observing something. And mm. uh, uh, it, it just blows my mind. And mm. um you know, like you. I mean, I, I got to say, w- w- one of our guests on the podcast said one of her piece piece of wisdom from he's a political correspondent. He said, "Do not argue with people you don't know." And online, it is so easy to do that. And I have to say, you know, I'm right. a full I'm a full grown ass man. I have three university degrees, but I've got more than once I've caught myself with my hand on the mouth saying, about to engage in some sort of nonsensical imaginary argument with somebody that whom I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, one, I think, what the hell's wrong with me? Two, what the hell's going on? And there is mm-hmm. there is something about that anonymity or that distance that, as you yes. so accurately say, it does, it well, it brings out the worst. I'm, I, I hope maybe it right. brings out the best of us as well. But I, I do see the worst come online a lot. Uh, lesson number nine, a Beatles song, no less. Money can't buy you love. Well, it's, it's true. <laughs> I, think, you know, I haven't tried uh, yet, so I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, I, I think that the statement applies beyond the United States, but I think it applies in particular in America, that ours is an acquisitive, materialistic culture, prizes, consumption. We tend not to be satisfied with what we have. We tend to think that if we just had more, you know, bigger house, a newer car, vacation place on the Cape, that somehow life would be better. And I think that's a pretty much a delusion. There's lots of people who have, quote unquote, more, you know, the billionaires and the celebrities. And I mean, the ones we know about are the celebrities. And it doesn't seem like that being a celebrity is necessarily a a path to happiness. Most of them seem to be afflicted in, in some way or another. So I just, I've just come, I just, I mean, again, because you're talking to somebody who relative to probably 95% of the population on planet earth, Mm -hmm. you're talking to somebody who actually is quite comfortable. We don't live in a mansion, but we live in a nice house. Since we don't live in Texas, we're not worried about losing our power for days on end. Mm -hmm. The the furnace keeps us warm in the wintertime and and the AC keeps us cool in the summertime. Once the pandemic is passed, God willing, we'll go out to eat when we're going to go out to eat. We won't go to the fanciest restaurants in Boston, but we'll go wherever we want to go. So, so from in a material sense, me, our family, we are privileged. There's no question about that. My point simply is that you get you get to you get to a position in terms of your physical security and and well-being. Just trying to get more is not going to make it any better. Matter of fact, I think to be satisfied. You know, to be content from a materialistic point of view, maybe that's one of the things that you know, opens up the possibility of a, a different line of thought about you know, the purpose of your existence. It's it's not simply to try to get a bigger car. Uh, I don't know how many people would you know take that opportunity, but I, I do know money can't buy a love. Well, the, the the Buddhists have nailed this centuries ago. They, uh, you'll often hear the word they talk about suffering. People suffer. A better translation of that word is unsatisfied, not dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. Unsatisfied. It's mm-hmm. you know you get more and more, but is it enough? And it's that lack, that feeling of I'm lacking something. And they say that's a that's a mirage. That really that's false that you are enough. Mm-hmm. And that's the lesson that you really have to get. And I think mm-hmm. the antidote for that, at least my own personal experience, is cultivating an attitude of gratitude for whatever the hell you yes. do have. And and yes. 
because that yes. feeling of unsatisfaction can really drive you to do some bizarre things. <laughs> yeah, again, I think that, uh, I mean, I'm an old guy. And so the insight that you just uh, offered, I just sort of nod my head and say, yeah, of course, that's correct. I don't think I would have said that at age 35. You, you end up having a different vantage point on, on things as you, as you, as you, as you age. Different, a different vantage point on what matters, mm. you know, on, on, on what, what should be valued. Well, because you've experienced what doesn't matter, for one thing. And by the way, you're old enough to be yes. on the show, so congratulations yeah. for that, you know. So, I mean, we, <laughs> if, we, if you were 35, you wouldn't be eligible. <laughs> Let, lesson number 10. This is a very personal one for me. You say, if you want to stay married, take long walks together with your partner. And, and I got to say, I'm my wife. We go out walking on the beach. We go out walking out of the park where we live. And, you know, I take the audio book on the MP3. And she says, don't even think about turning that on. I said, wait a minute, baby. It's an audio book. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's a book by Andrew Basevich. Come on. You know, and mm -hmm. she doesn't care. She doesn't want to. <laughs> when you go for those long walks, it's all about communication and being in the here and now. And so from my personal experience, you're onto something here. Want to stay married? Take long walks with your partner. Tell us more. Well, I'm 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 with your wife. Uh, and, you know, we don't we don't always walk together. When when my wife walks by herself, she's putting something in her ear to listen to news or music or whatever. When I walk by myself, I don't do that. When I when I walk walk by myself, to me, that's the time when my mind wanders in a productive sense. If I'm working on an essay or a book, it's when I'm walking by myself that the, the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Oh yeah, okay. I, I can see now where this chapter is supposed to go. And and if I were sitting here in front of my computer, staring at that incomplete chapter, knowing I have a problem, I'll waste an incredible amount of time. So I walk away from it, and I'm walking by myself. Uh, that the answer that comes. So we we walk together probably three times a week. Uh, right now, because of COVID and and winter sort of some of the walking places or uh, restrictions on where we can go. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. The point is that when, when you walk together, and we've been married more than 50 years now, there's nothing to do except to talk to one another. And it's not that you talk to one another to, to say, you know, let us discuss what we think is the meaning of life. It's, it's ordinary things. What do you want to have for dinner? Have you talked to so-and-so lately? Did you see that card? Uh, ordinary things. But I think we have found that those conversations, even if at, 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 you know, at a superficial level, they're ordinary, is a, is a different level in which they uh, affirm intimacy and partnership. You know, we remind one another through those moments that we are a couple. And, and frankly, for the two of us, uh, there's like nothing more important than the fact that we are and have been a couple. Mm -hmm. So it's nurturing, I think, in ways that it's, it's, in, in a way it's kind of hard to explain. You know, give me a break. You go for a walk, and that's like you know a big deal. The answer is yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, so I, I, I think we both have come to believe that it's one of the best things you can do uh, to maintain a relationship. Get away from the hubbub. Get away from the internet. Get away from Facebook. Just go outside, breathe some fresh air walk for about an hour, talk to one another. And you use the word remind yourself and each other that you're in this relationship. And you, you think, okay, 50 years, you need a reminder. Well, actually, the answer may be yes, but we need constant yes. reminder. There needs to be a continual yes. process. But your, your work, your comment about walking, not listening, thinking about work, and things just happen, remind me, Thoreau's comment, Trust no thought arrived at while sitting down. <laughs> so that's what he said. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I, I, th I think it's true. I mean, I there are a lot of walking meditations that things just occur to you when you're out there hoofing around by yourself. Yep. And, and that's a good thing. Let me finish with one last question. We've been talking about things that you've learned. Let me ask you about something that you've unlearned, something you absolutely positively knew to be true then, but now. Now that you're wiser, now you know it's not true, not the case. Can you give me an example of that? I hadn't thought about this. I think that uh, I, I have a different view of success. 
and where it sort of fits in my life. You know, I've I've written or edited, I don't know how many books now, a dozen or so. Thanks to my agent and my editor, I've sold more books than I ever possibly imagined I would sell. Some of my books have done poorly. Some have done pretty well. A couple have done real well. When I die, they could put on my gravestone, best-selling author, and it would not be a lie. And once upon a time, I thought that, this is post, post-Army, post that to be a best-selling author, you know, to have, to have a book on the New York Times bestseller list was, was like the ultimate. You've arrived, yes. And I don't believe that anymore. I mean, I got a new book coming out in the summertime. I, I will be very grateful if people buy it and it does well. I'll be disappointed if it flops. But I can't say that I'm invested in that, uh, that measure of my uh, worth the way I once was. Uh, I've sort of gone on to other things, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It makes a lot of sense to me. And you're not the first guest to say that about reframing success as you get older. And, and the pattern that I see among the guests is it becomes uh, less and less material and more internally with an internal locus. Mm. I mean, you're writing the book because you want to write a book, not because you want to sell a bunch of books is what I'm, what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. What, what, is, what is the new book's title, by the way? I, I just finished Age of Illusions, as I mentioned. What's the new one? It's called After the Apocalypse. That's a dramatic title. <laughs> and the subtitle is America's Role in a World Transformed. Again, you mentioned before that some of my books are short. This is a short, I think, I think this is like 165 pages long. It's quite mm-hmm. short. I wrote it basically over the summer during the middle of the pandemic. And the argument is that, you know, the, the pandemic killed, now he's killed more than a half million Americans. The economic damage caused by that, uh, the tumult of the, of the Trump presidency and a couple of other factors. All of these I'm arguing are the equivalent of an apocalypse has, you know, afflicted the American people. And the book tries to say, well, given what we have experienced, this is how our role in the world ought to change and to some degree must change. Uh, that's what it's all about. I look forward to reading that one. I hope you will. Uh, yeah, we'll count on it as soon as it comes out. And we will finish here on that note. Folks, you've been listening to the podcast, 10 Lessons It Took 50 Years to Learn. And our guest today has been Andrew Basevich. Our producer today is Robert Hosry, and our podcast is sponsored by the Professional Development Forum, PDF. They offer social webinars, podcasts, parties, anything you want, everything you need, and it's all free. You can read more about them on their website, professionaldevelopmentforum.org. And how about you, readers, listeners, viewers? You can contact us. You can give us some feedback. We want to know what you want to know. Who would you like to talk to? What sort of wisdom would you offer? What sort of guests would you like us to talk to? You can contact us. Our email address is podcast at 10 less lessonslearned.com. That email address again is podcast at 1010lessonslearned.com. And remember, this is the only podcast on the internet that makes the world a little wiser, lesson by lesson. Thanks for joining us today. 